Hello. Welcome to the Authors on the Air Network. My name is Bruce Robert Coffin, and I am the guest host today. And it is my pleasure to introduce award-winning novelist and friend, Chris Holm, to the program. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me by. It feels like we uh, have been doing this quite a bit lately. Uh, I was lucky enough to attend uh, your launch the other night with our, with our beautiful spouses uh, down in Portland's Old Port. Yeah, that was uh, it was it was kind of my my first event of the COVID era, a little less formal than I'm used to, but thankfully it didn't turn into a super spreader event and people right. had a good time. So, right. <laughs> so I'm that's the away. last thing any of us want at this point. Um, I got to say, Chris, I just wanted to open with Child Zero was an absolutely thrilling read. I think I told you that the other night and uh, bravo hats off to you. That was very, very well done. Um, I know you've waited, as we all have, a while for, for that thing to come to fruition, but it was worth the wait. Um, Thank you. That's kind of you to say. I think I touched on this the other night, and what I found fascinating, I mean, you, you're already a great thriller writer, but you've now encapsulated something that I find terrifying. Uh, as a as a, a child of the 60s and 70s and 80s and all that stuff, I feel like I've made a career out of um, eating antibiotics for every little conceivable thing that we get, right? You know, ear infection, whatever it is, right? Sinus infection. Seems like we're always taking antibiotics. And mm -hmm. as I am beginning to climb up into my upper uh, years, I, I, my, my greatest fear is that the antibiotics will stop working. Um, and you have you've encapsulated that fear, I think, for all of us in this book. Um, tell us a little bit about where the idea for that came from. Well, um, I have been uh, a professional writer since I guess about 2007. I had my first my first story published, um, but until my fourth novel, um, I I made my living as a molecular biologist. So it was, you know, crime fiction and and fantasy and science fiction on the on the nights and weekends, uh, and then the day job was was science. Uh, it's something I've always had a passion for, mm -hmm. but it didn't, it didn't feel right to me to be writing science um, while it was my day job. It was like a separation of church and state kind of thing. But thankfully, I've got a little distance from it now, and I was able to, to tackle a story that, that's been something that, that has been at the top of my mind for a long time. Scientists have been warning about the end of the antibiotic era uh, for, for well over a decade now. And uh, by and large, I don't think the public has an understanding of what that means. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, a big part of science uh, that scientists often struggle with is communicating, you know, communicating the science, communicating the threat. We saw the same thing with COVID in the early days. Uh, and so I thought I have a unique ability as a thriller writer and a scientist to translate these, you know, alarms that have been sounding uh, so that the average person can understand them. And, you know, I think what's gratifying uh, about this book is I haven't heard from anybody, boy, it's awfully science-y. What I've heard is, my God, it's terrifying. Um, right. It actually seems to be scarier than I thought it was as a scientist. I was, I was aiming for thrilling. I didn't mean to scare the living daylights out of people, but, <laughs> but I'll take it. Well, your timing is certainly uh, not suspect, but uh, I guess it couldn't be better timed in that regard. Um, I know you started this book uh, before the pandemic actually happened, mm -hmm. but here we are still in the middle of it. Um, and you were obviously writing it um, as we were living this real life nightmare. What was that like uh, for you to write a book like this during that time? 
Oh, I mean, it was it was challenging for a lot of reasons. I began this book in 2016. It, it was a very research-heavy book because I set out as a goal for myself that I didn't want to cut corners on the science at all. I mean, you know this. You you write police procedurals, and you know police procedure, and nothing probably drives you crazier than somebody who screws that up. Right. And it's the same for me with science. It, when I when I see terrible science in an otherwise decent work of fiction, it knocks me right out of the story. Uh, so I really wanted it to 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 be buttoned down and and just just to get everything about the science right, not cut any corners. Um, so I was writing it well before COVID, uh, and that was a challenge just to wrap my head around the scope of the story. Once COVID hit, uh, certainly there was this moment of of dread of my God, who's going to want to read a book about a pandemic, having suffered through a pandemic, um, but also. It was chilling to me because with my background in infectious disease research, uh, I finished the first draft in early January 2020 when the numbers for COVID were in a couple hundred. It looked like it might be the next SARS. Uh, and I did not have to change a single thing in the book as I watched that pandemic unfold. I mean, it's been about as textbook as you could imagine. And although this book is a very different kind of story, um, and is not actually about a viral pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of the the geopolitics, the cultural stuff. Um, you know, boy, boy, it. it uh, I probably lose some points for uh, my prognostication skills, but I gain a few on plausibility with the audience yeah. because they've seen firsthand how this unfolds. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, and and unfortunately, I think I might have nailed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, as you were talking about this, I'm getting that visual of. Uh of uh, like a horror movie as, as the twister is coming through the, uh, the drive-in parking lot kind of thing. You know what I mean? You're writing this book and here it comes, you know? Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny too, though, because I mean, like I said, scientists have been warning this is, this is imminent for a long time, not just the post-antibiotic era, but, but a true pandemic. They said, you know, it's happened a bunch of times in the past. It can happen again. Right. Uh, and yet it's still, even if you know, intellectually it's coming, it's still um, terrifying to watch it unfold in reality. I mean, it was certainly as traumatic for me as it has been for everybody else. Sure. Um, I want to read this so I get it right. Um, it's funny, you know, you print out your questions and they're never quite as big as you imagined they would be. <laughs> so here I am squinting, but I want to get this quote right. Um, a few of our uh, viewers, a few of uh, a reader, right there, I'm sorry, that a few of our viewers may have heard of had this to say about child zero. If you like thrillers that really thrill, you're going to enjoy this to the max. The last 70 pages of twists go off like a string of firecrackers. Now I have to ask, how awesome was it to learn that Stephen King had tweeted about your book? You know, Stephen King was the first grown-up book I ever read. I was nine years old. I was told to go into my aunt's childhood room to pick out any book I wanted. And I ignored all of her books on the shelf. I think I plucked are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Off the shelf, read a page and thought, I don't think this is for me. Uh, and somebody, somebody who had spent the night, used it as a guest room, had left a copy of the Tommyknockers. It was the largest book I'd ever seen to date at that point. And I, I remember I opened it, I read a little bit, it scared the crap out of me. I snuck it into my backpack because I was pretty sure I shouldn't be reading it. Um, and brought it home with me and read it under the covers. Stephen King was the first author I ever met 
I met him when I was 13. I paid $18.50 to see him speak at the Landmark Theater in Syracuse, New York. Wow. Uh, he signed a book for me. The fact, I mean, he, the, the impact he's had on my life is, can't, be, can't be overstated. I was shocked. I was bowled over when I found out he tweeted about my book because I had no idea that was going to happen. Um, I was watching TV on the couch with my wife when my phone started going crazy. Uh, and it was, it was such a thrill. And I have to say, not only is he so gracious about hyping other authors, he, I mean, he's turned me on to many of my favorite authors like Donald Westlake, uh, Michael McDowell, but he also, uh, I was able to get him a thank you note through my agent and he sent back the loveliest email uh, that I think I'm going to refer to from here on out anytime I have a lousy writing day. Uh, you know, I, I impressed Stephen King. There's, there's, you know, there's not much better than that. That's awesome. I mean, you, you had a similar experience, actually. Uh, I did. With, with Joseph Wambaugh, who is, I yeah. mean, just, <laughs> just the writer's writer when it comes to putting police on the page. And he had some lovely stuff to say about you. So you've had a taste of just how crazy oh, it is absolutely. to get a blurb like that. Yeah, it's surreal. Right. It's absolutely surreal. It is. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line is either either one of us, if, if Wambar or, or King had even said something bad about our books, just to get mentioned is, is a thrill in itself, right? Right. Right. Like if, if Stephen <laughs> King knew that I existed, if he called me an idiot on Twitter, right. I'd be like, wow, right. Stephen King knows I exist. Right. <laughs> That's great. Um, speaking of King, uh, I can't help but be reminded as I read this book um, of the uh, the plague novels that that we all read growing up. Uh, the Stand comes to mind, mm-hmm. um, uh, Andromeda Strain, uh, those kinds of, of books. Um, King, Crichton, any of those any of those people were influences you think early on for you beyond, you know, just being fans of their work, but like influenced any of your writing? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the history of what I've written, I've written some dark fantasy, I've written a lot of horror short stories, I've written gritty crime. Uh, you know, King has has a finger in all of those pies. Uh, Michael Crichton, for me, when I was a kid, uh, was hugely influential because I was a science nerd. Uh, and here was a brand of science fiction that people didn't call science fiction. Science fiction, when I was younger, was very uh, ghettoized in a, in a respect. It wasn't taken seriously. But Crichton was taken seriously. And he was writing hard science that people would line up to buy. I mean... You know, the Andromeda strain is one of the most accurate microbiological stories ever told. Uh, Jurassic Park is a lesson in genetics. Uh, Certainly, they were huge influences on my life. But also, uh, when it came to this book, my watchword was, I want to write a Michael Crichton novel. I want to write a big, sciencey novel that moves like classic pulp. I mean, it's a a freight train, uh, pace-wise. By design, I cut a lot of words from this one to try and keep it pacey because that's what I loved about his book. You would learn a lesson along the way, but man, you would have a blast doing it. Right, right. Well, you succeeded in that, no question about it. Thank um, you. I've heard you say, uh, just from from a uh, creative standpoint or uh, uh, the the work, actual work that goes into writing a novel, that uh, many times a character is the thing that sort of drags you along into an idea or the, or the you know, the plot line itself. Um, but this one you said was different. Um, mm-hmm. Explain that to, to, our, to our viewers. Right. So usually when I sit down to write a novel, uh, it's because a character is, is nattering in my head. 
you know, maybe narrating a scene. And that's how it was for my collector series. That's how it was for my Hendrix books. I had this voice in my head. Uh, and I, I, you know, you just try to listen to it. You try and figure out who this person is and why they are where they are and what they're up to. With this book, I started with the premise. I started with the idea uh, that I wanted to write a thriller that takes place in a post-antibiotic era. And I keep saying, you know, that's a, that's a premise in need of a plot. What's the plot of that story? You could go anywhere. Um, and so for me, a lot of it was about immersing myself in the research, because even though this is my background, this is a very specialized area of science, and I had to do a ton of research to wrap my head around it, because I have to know it cold if I'm going to explain it in plain English, right. you know? Uh, and then I tried to, as I researched, figure out who the characters are who would best get this story across. I didn't want a bunch of talking heads in lab coats. You know, I didn't want I didn't want a bunch of scientists in a bunker working on this. I wanted real people. I wanted men and women that you have met uh, who are living their lives because it's not a post-apocalyptic novel. It does take place in a world that's rattled, but still functioning. Uh, and my you know, my my protagonist is is a, a, an NYPD detective. Uh, one of the main characters in the book uh, is a child migrant. Um, you know, this this is it, it's a very ground level novel by design because I didn't want it to seem like a lecture in novel form. You know, I really wanted it to be uh, thrilling and showing what real people are going to be dealing with if this comes to pass. Right. Which, unfortunately, you know, anybody who's serious about about science uh, is saying that it will. In fact, the UN says. By 2050, we're going to be losing 10 million additional people a year to multidrug-resistant uh, uh, microbes, which is, which is horrifying. And I feel like, man, people need to wrap their head around just how scary this is going to be because it's not too late to head it off. But kind of like climate change, once you get to the brink of it happening, you're, you're almost too late. You need to change hearts and minds now. Right, right. Um, you mentioned uh, your... Uh, well, the, the subject matter of Child Zero, which is Mateo. Um, talk a little bit about Matt, where the origin of that character did come from. Right. So I often think of, of novels as the intersection of a couple of different ideas. So one for me was this idea of a post-antibiotic era. And the other was the emerging research on the human microbiota, which is just a, a fancy name for all the critters that live in, on, and around us. We used to think they were along for the ride, that they didn't do much of anything, but it turns out they can affect everything from your, your health to your mood um, to your, your you know, obesity, schizophrenia, things like that are all tied very closely to your microbiota. And so I knew that I, I was going to incorporate that in some way, and I won't go into too many spoilers about how I did, but I soon realized Mateo was such a necessary character for a lot of reasons. First of all, I wanted him to be innocent. Uh, and he's a kid. He's 12 years old. He's smart. He's resourceful. Uh, he did come to this country uh, semi-illegally, seeking asylum. Uh, he has been in, in a lot of challenging environments, and that means that his microbiota has had to adapt to that. And so that was important to the story as well. But it also captured a lot of the public health stuff I wanted to tackle, the idea of the way we treat minorities as far as their health, their bodily autonomy, the way we dehumanize them, I wanted to, to really rehumanize him. Uh, and, and 
he was really born of a lot of the research I did. Uh, I wouldn't have dared write a child migrant of mixed race without having done mountains of research. And it turns out he's one of my favorite characters that I've ever written. He was a great character for sure. Like those opening sequences with him uh, were terrifying. <laughs> you you succeeded. I mean, I picture myself right where he was doing all of that without giving that away. But um, the readers who haven't already read this book are in for a treat. Uh, the way that's all been done. You did an excellent job with that. Well, and I think King and Crichton also often would have point of view characters who were kids. And that's something that I think speaks to the audience I'm trying to reach. You know, you want to involve everybody. You want everybody to feel like they can see themselves in the book. Right. Well, that's it. Like you you mentioned, avoiding the lab coat scenario. It -hmm. feels like you wrote a book and you wrote all of us into that story. Um, And unfortunately, the other scary thing is you set this in the not too distant future. Was that, mm-hmm. was that a calculated move on your part, or, or did you just pick a year out of the hat? No, it was. It, I, I said it as soon as I thought it could plausibly scientifically happen. So it ends up taking place in about from 2027 to 2031 from the early, you know, uh, sort of backstory of the book to the present of the book. Right. Uh, so it, it, uh, it, it's not that far off. It, it's as close oh. to the real world as you can make it, and that's, that's pretty terrifying. Right. Well, I thought the stand was the scariest thing I'd ever read. And now, thanks. Thank you very much. You've taught that. So um, I, I, you mentioned the, your uh, your protagonist, uh, the, the police detectives. Um, I enjoyed the, the back and forth and the relationship dynamics between your two main detectives. Um, and maybe I'm biased because of my background, but talk a little bit about those characters and uh, how you saw them uh, developing. Well, I mean, you know, Jake is very much... Uh... Uh, Jacob Gibson very much a stand-in for me to some extent. I mean, he's he's a little younger than me, but he's basically a middle-aged white guy. He's well-intentioned. He's halfway bright, uh, but he is naive to a lot of things. I think by virtue of the privilege that he experiences in his life, his partner, Amy Amira Hassan, uh, is a, a young hijabi detective who has risen through the ranks because she's an excellent cop. Uh, and finds that he's a good fit for her as a partner because he's, he's, he takes her seriously. He listens to her. He doesn't think she's a token. Uh, and the ease with which they communicate uh, was a joy for me to write. I, I love buddy stories. And I think they, they have a genuine affection and a genuine respect for each other. Uh, I don't think that's shown on the page as often as it should be uh, when it comes to detectives. I, I really enjoyed writing that. I'm from a, I'm from a cop family. Uh, I wanted to show that genuine camaraderie. Uh, and affection, and that was that was a lot of fun for me. You could feel it, uh, and I and I like the the difference in the experience between the two of them. Uh, mm-hmm. He is she is quite obviously more experienced as a detective than he is. I kind of like that. Yeah, and you know she uh, she also fills in a lot of his blind spots. I think mm-hmm. I didn't want to have a white savior narrative. I wanted to make sure that that his arc uh, was was one of of learning and growing. And certainly by the people he surrounded himself with, um, they they influenced that arc, which which I found very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Well done. Um, let's see here. Having read uh, Child Zero, I have to say that, and I know, I think you and I talked about this when you were first working on this project. Um, you kept it a secret for a while, but then finally you started sharing a few things. Um, was, was it as hard as I would have imagined? Like we talk about, trying to not do things that pull readers out of, out of the book. And you have, there's so much information, so much science behind this story. Was it hard for you to do that 
to get it across in an understandable way and keep the story moving quickly? Yeah, I mean, it was it was about putting a lot on the page and then just paring back and paring back and running it past non-scientists like my wife, my agent, my editor, uh, just to make sure people could grasp what I was saying. Um, and I just cut to the bone until there was nothing else to cut. Well, you did you did well. It flies right along. It's one of those you can read in two or three nights. That's it, you know. And I, I love that. I think that's great because your spouse doesn't like it if you're if the light is on in the bedroom. But that's right. <laughs> that's the curse. Um, you've got six novels six novels published now by my count that I'm aware of. I don't. You feel like me? I don't know how many <laughs> short novels you got going. Um, also, you've done what thirty short stories uh, publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, how many awards? I, we didn't talk about that because this would be twice as long this program. Um, <laughs> what's next? What is on the horizon? Oh, that's a great question. I think you know, maybe maybe a beer and a nap. No, I, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, we I'm, see I'm, any more I'm, Michael Hendrick? I think that's another thing. Uh, I, I think of. we. I think we will see some more Michael Hendricks in the future. Although I think I'm going to work on another standalone first. Maybe something kind of in the vein of Child Zero, where it blends the science and the action. Mm-hmm. Can you make it so that the, the antibiotics start working again so that I can sleep at night? That would be very helpful. Yeah, I, I sincerely hope somebody can. Right. That'd be great. Right. right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about anything you have coming up? I know you, your plate has been full. You've got, I think you've got an interview tonight. Is that right? I do indeed. I've done, I've done virtual events all over the place, uh, including Mysterious Galaxy, Poison Pen. Uh, that's tonight. Uh, but by the time this, this, this hits right. the air. I'm, uh, it'll it'll be up on YouTube for people's viewing pleasure. Uh, I'll be at Maine Crime Wave in person on June 11th, which I'm very excited about. We're doing it outside under a tent, Looking and uh, BoucherCon uh, in in September. So hope to see everybody there. Very cool. And where can our viewers go to find out more about Chris Holm and whatever he might be up to? Well, my website's chrisholmbooks.com. You can catch me on Twitter at chris f holm. Uh, Instagram is also chrisholmebooks.com or at chrisholmebooks. I haven't figured out how to sell books from Instagram, so it's mostly just pictures of <laughs> beer and tattoos and my cat. <laughs> you and everybody else. That's right. Chris, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Um, and best of luck with this book and, and uh, your future endeavors. Thank you. Always great catching up, buddy. Cheers.